Hello and welcome to another episode of A Dash of Science. I'm your host, Chris. Each week we tackle a subject in the STEM field that we think is interesting and chat about it in a down-to-earth way that everyone can enjoy and understand. This week is our salute to women of STEM in honor of Women's History Month. So sit back, relax, and enjoy A Dash of Science. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm Chris. And I'm Carrie. And this week we are doing our uh, Ode to Women in STEM. Yeah, buddy. It is Women's History Month, and since we are a science podcast, we are going to kind of focus on STEM-ish type people. There's a little bit out of there, but, you know, that's fine. What does it matter, right? It's going to be awesome. Wait, wait, you have people who aren't part of STEM? <sighs> they're like borderline, like they're like art people who used art stuff for medical reasons. That's, I'm counting it as STEM. That's cheating. Nope. It counts. You totally cheated. It's not cheating. <laughs> but anyways, so this week's show, this week's show, it is not a week. This is a very strong show. This week's show is brought to you by Coffee Gator, one of our amazing sponsors who make great coffee accessories. They have all sorts of things to make coffee drink coffee, uh, and make coffee better. So check them out, Coffee Gator. We've got a uh, code you can use that is Quark. Oh, I knew that. Yes, Quark, Q-U-A-R-K, which will get you a percentage off. And we'll also have a link in the show notes so you can check those out and help support the show. Uh, so no re- new reviews this week, but that's okay. Uh, you can check us out and review us on iTunes or on Facebook or really anywhere else that you find us. Uh, we love to hear them, even if they're not like... You're doing awesome. If you have any sort of critiques or things that you'd like to see us do differently or better, like I'd like to hear that. Me too. I think it's important. Yeah. Um, also, as I mentioned last week, uh, I recorded an episode with Into the Portal podcast, and I think, I think it should be releasing this Friday. Uh, but even if I, if it doesn't, make sure you check them out. It's a great show. But also check out the one that I'm on because I like that one a lot. I really like their show. It is. It's a good show, and they have a great chemistry. So They do. They have good voices and good like uh, production, and like topics are interesting. And they are like prolific content creators. Like They are constantly coming out with stuff between their regular show and their, and their Patreon. I'm very jealous of, of how much they're able to put out in, in a short period of time. That's good quality. That's excellent. Uh, also, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash dash of science for some cool content that we're coming out with. Uh, Twitter, Discord, our new Facebook community. Basically, search dash of science. Click all of the things. You all won't regret them. it. All of the things. <laughs> yes. Uh, so this week on our news articles, let's talk about Joshua Trees. Oh, buddy, we have a lot of those yes, around here. Yes, we do. Here. They're weird, right? They are weird. I they're mean, like, like, how do they even exist? Like, Well, they're not even trees. No, they're not trees. Uh, but, like, they do exist, and they exist exactly, exactly one place in the entire world, right here in our very own Mojave Desert. Interesting. I, mean, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, Mojave Desert isn't exactly small, right? It spans uh, California, Nevada, Utah, and Arizona. But like there, it, it doesn't exist anywhere else, and there's only two species, two species. Of is Joshua it boy trees. Joshua trees and girl Joshua trees? That is, that is not what a species is. <laughs> hey, you know what? It made sense to me. Uh, here's what I didn't know though. We we call them a tree, and as you you mentioned, they're not. But they certainly look more like a tree than literally any other type of plant life, right? Oh yeah. Uh, but they're actually in the same family as the agave and asparagus. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know asparagus had relatives. No, I did not know that either or ones that looked like that. If, if, if you guys haven't heard of these or seen them, uh, look them up. I thought that they existed in one other place, like in India or something. Uh, like I swore I was told that once, but in my brief looking that up, I didn't see that. So there's th- still possibility there might be one other place in like India, but I could be confusing it with star garnets. I know that sounds like a very weird thing to confuse uh, a plant with is a gem. But when we were living in northern Idaho, they had these really cool eight point star garnets that only existed in two places in the world. That one place in northern Idaho and some place in like India or something. Interesting. So Yeah. I don't know. My brain weight makes weird connections like that that but uh an article i was reading uh described 
these trees as a touch of Dr. Seuss in the Mojave Desert. And I really liked that because once I read that, like I could see that. It's a good description. Yeah, because they grow all wild and crazy. They look like they're like punching people they and do. drunk and fighting. They look or... like, like plants that are drunk boxing each other. <laughs> Most definitely. Uh, and they smell like mushrooms. Have you ever gotten up close to one and smelled one? I heard when they're in bloom, they smell really bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, they made the news during the partial government shutdown here recently. I guess someone came up to one of the protected national forests and knocked one over. Oh, no. Well, I mean, it was just one. And I and I don't get me wrong. They are, I don't know if they're endangered, but they're a, a, a protected species because there's not very many of them in existence to begin with. Not because people were murderizing them, but because, you know, they're just not many to begin with. Nobody sells them for right. their smell. Right. Uh, but there, there are still a couple million of them in this area. So it's not a, you know, get the torches out and chase somebody because they knocked one over. But so I thought it was weird that it was in the news for that. But the interesting part. Uh, of what I was reading is there that there's two species of these tree and each species of tree relies on exactly one type of moth and that one type of moth is a different species for each of the two species so there's two species of moths each one for each species of tree does that make sense that does make sense that's really interesting actually so the tree relies on them to pollinate them are those the little moths that get in the house all the time? I don't know. That's a good question. I didn't actually look up what they look like. Because those little uh, buggers are everywhere. They're very annoying. Uh, but unlike most pollinators, which sip nectar, so the female moth climbs like into the tree blossom, uh, and they uncurl this semi-translucent tentacle from its uh, little moth mouth, uh, and it collects pollen into like a heavy yellow wad under the mouth, the moth's head. Like, weird, this right? This sounds like something out of Star Trek. <laughs> I was thinking, like, Mothra. The, <laughs> Just the, going around and collecting Joshua trees. The drunk boxing trees that aren't trees oh, that have creatures that are codependent on them. Yes. And, yeah. But, uh, so after they collect the pollen under their heads, they then head to a different flower that's ready to be pollinated, or fertilized, rather. Uh, and then they spread the pollen out and inject her eggs inside of it. Oh, so they're completely dependent on each uh, other. Yes. So these hatch into caterpillars, and then those caterpillars eat the seeds inside the flowers. That is amazing. Yeah, and that's it. That is why these tr- these things exist. Their entire thing, like both the moth and the tree, are are very dependent. I don't know if the moths do this, like with any other plant. I didn't read if they were that dependent on the trees, but I mean, I would think, right? Well, they grow in big patches, so they that do. would make sense. Yeah, so I w- which makes me wonder, then obviously these two species of moths have to only be native to here, right? Uh, you would think so. Well, <laughs> unless they do have other plants that they fertilize. Hmm. It's weird. we got our own little like biome here that's completely independent from the entire rest of the world. Maybe you should have done some research, and then we would have known. No, this is a quick article. It doesn't involve uh, in-depth research and analysis. <laughs> what I said was interesting. Take it and learn it and, and stop. <laughs> Well, fine. We'll move on to our next article. How about that? All right. What's next? All right. A paper reported in Optics Letters by MIT Lincoln Laboratories discusses using a laser tuned to interact with water vapor in the air. So it creates a localized like sound that's loud enough to be picked up by a human hearing uh, if it's near where your ears are. So this is the first time that this has been able to be done safely around humans. And the localized area is only like a few square inches. Okay, wait. Explain this to me. What exactly is going on? All right. They are shooting sound through a laser to your ear. So you could stand over here by the door, which is about, you know, six feet away from me. And I could send this sound through this laser to a specific point next to your ear and you will hear it clearly and nobody else will. Oh my God. This is going to take secret levels to a whole new place. Right. Uh... Yeah, so direct noise via laser to our ear holes. I want one. <laughs> I actually worked with uh, Lincoln Labs here a few years ago. Um, they developed a display system uh, called Zeus here for ADSB, which is uh, Automatic Dependent Surveillance, Surveillance Broadcast, which I always thought that name was funny, Automatic Dependent. It's automatically dependent. Okie dokie. Interesting. Uh, it's basically a method for uh, like real-time precision shared situational awareness for pilots. What is that? Uh, so they have 
these little uh, transponder sort of or a beacon that they put on the planes that transmit uh, their personal like heading and information, uh, which go down and collect so you can get their their location on a display so that other people can see where they're at. That's cool. Right. So you can do that with skin tracking through radar, which will give you some information. And then there's different types of beacons and stuff. So this is just another method of doing that, essentially. But they came down here and we were working with them. But uh, anyways, back to sound lasers. Uh (laughs) Dude, seriously, I'm going to get one. And when you're in the kitchen, I'm just going to sound laser you, like, get me a do. Yes, unfortunately, the sounds are not yet complex. Uh, So I I deliberately misled you a little bit at the beginning just for funsies. But right now, all you can really hear is like maybe like insect sounds kind of buzzing. Uh, But they are working on it to be able to do exactly what you're talking about. And uh, right now, the distance is limited to uh, a few meters away from the source because you can only hear it when the laser is traveling like at the speed of light at a certain distance. That's okay. It's not very far from the couch to the kitchen. That is true. It's a little farther. and Maybe a couple meters. It's a couple meters. It's like six feet, right? It's not so, very far. Yeah. Yeah, it'll work. We can just work on, on buzz translations, like two buzzes for Mountain Dew, uh, one buzz for make me a sandwich. But I'm not making you a sandwich, so don't worry. Or I that. could just shout at you, make me a sandwich. <laughs> this, this is true. Anyways, I thought it was cool. No, it is definitely <laughs> a cool like gizmo. But what like what are the practical applications for this? I would assume, uh, like you're talking about, like in uh, secrecy or things of that nature. I don't really know. It, I mean, it's kind of interesting we talk about things like this because, like, the government is really good at funding what I call initial discovery uh, or level one items, whatever you want to call it. So things that don't have a direct obvious benefit, but of which other people can take that knowledge and then use it to develop like a second level thing that does have commercial value. All right. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Uh, In place of our No It Wasn't Aliens this week, I wanted to kind of take a minute and give a shout out to SpaceX. Uh, for their successful launch of the Crew Dragon spacecraft, which docked with the ISS uh, earlier this week. That's pretty cool. Yes. I mean, this is really cool because this means that the United States could send astronauts into space from U.S. soil uh, for the first time in almost a decade as early as the middle of this year. That's exciting. It is freaking awesome. Very excited for that. Time for you to go get your astronaut training. Yeah, that's what I was waiting for. Uh, I was just kind of screwing around until I knew we could launch from U.S. soil again. Well, that's important. I wouldn't want to go up in a Russian one either. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. We'll leave that alone. (laughs) Uh, Boeing CST-100 Starliner is the other contract that NASA has. Uh, Could also be doing their own tests. Uh, as early as April, I believe it was, and I may or may not be involved in some of the design plans for the communications for the recovery. That's really yes. cool. So, so seriously, I don't really know yet, but it's possible. <laughs> I thought you were dropping a hint that it was no, secret. No, I wish I was. Uh, and I, and I, I, it's my group, it will be helping with it, but I don't know if I will be assigned it yet or not. I did do some of the original uh, line of sight calculations for seeing if we could help them with radar tracking, etc., when they were originally planning on coming down closer to Yuma. Uh, But it looks like they might be coming down here at Edwards. Uh, So there you go. Weren't you just complaining you had too much to do and you didn't want any more projects? Yes, but this is space stuff. I want to do space stuff. Okay, I will allow it. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get on with the regular part of our show in talking about awesome women in STEM. Let's do it. All right. Guess what? Chicken butt. You're first. Oh my gosh, I'm first? Okay, now um, some of these names might not be exact because I haven't listened to any translators. So if I make any mistakes, go ahead and send us a message and uh, make sure that we get it right. Yeah. Don't chastise me because I make pronunciation mistakes all the time on names. Just her. Yeah, you can't name places sometimes either. Places that I know and I realize like 10 minutes later when we're talking like, oh... Like, uh, somebody was talking to us on Twitter about my mispronunciation of Carnegie. And in thinking about it, I I know what Carnegie is. I know how to pronounce it. But for whatever reason, when I saw it written down, it just didn't snap in my head. I'm like, I don't know what that word is. I'm just going to make something up. <laughs> I didn't even correct you when I should have. Yep. All right. So who who do we have first? 
Uh, first up for me is going to be Virginia Apgar. Ah. Um, she was an anesthesiologist, mm-hmm. and she lived from 1909 to 1974. Awesome. What did she do? So we're going to start with her early life, and then we'll move into her contributions. Okay. So Apgar graduated from Mount Holyoke College in 1929, where she studied zoology and had minors in physics and chemistry. So she studied. So she got her degree in zoology. Yes. Had a minor in physics. Physiology. Or physiology. And, and chemistry. What, and chemistry. And then from that became an anesthesiologist. Oh, yeah. It gets better. She has more degrees in okay. the end. Anyway, in 1933, she graduated fourth in her class at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. So and she went to med school. She went to med school. And she completed her residency for surgery at PNS in 1937. Wow. And that wasn't a... Uh like, I don't think female doctors were common. Surgeonists especially. Right, in the 1930s. Right. So that's when this happened. So she was discouraged by one of her, uh, his name was Alan Whipple. He was the chairman of surgery at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. And he told her that she would probably not become a surgeon because she was a woman. And uh, So here's the question. Was he just trying to be real with her at the time or was he a jerk? I don't know. It doesn't say. I wonder. So he encouraged her to pursue a practice in anesthesiology because he felt that the advancements in anesthesiology were needed to further advance surgery. And he felt that she had the energy and ability, in quotes, to make a significant contribution. Okay. So that sounds like then maybe he was just trying to guide her to a place where she could be successful with the bounds of what, I mean, the society was at the time. I don't want to be like, you should totally discourage somebody, but at least he gave her like, hey, this other thing that is also equally awesome, right? And you can go do that. Yeah. I took it more like he was like, let's send you into this part of science that, you know, we don't really need. And Oh, you think so? See what you maybe can do he with was that. Like, <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't say. Oh, all right. All right. Well, deciding to further her career, she moved into anesthesiology. So she trained for six months under Dr. Ralph Waters at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he had established the first anesthesiology department in the United States. Hmm. She then studied for six more months under uh, Ernest Rovenstein in New York at Bellevue Hospital. She received a certification in anesthesiolo- as an anesthesiologist in 1937 and returned to PNS in 1938 as director of the newly formed Division of Anesthesiology. Well, that sounds impressive. I thought so. It's a mouthful for sure. You know, my uh, combined knowledge of uh, anesthesiology... It's they put you under. Uh, they put them under, and my uncle is one. Oh, that is the extent of my knowledge. I'm so impressed <laughs> right now with how much you know about this topic. Yes. <laughs> so I'm glad that you could uh, talk about her because I'm I'm learning. All right. So later, she received a master's degree in public health from John Hopkins School of Hygiene and Public Health, graduating in 1959. Hmm. So there's another degree she's got. That's crazy. Right? All right. So let's move on to her contribution. Some of you might actually already know because APGAR is something that is pretty common to know these days. Mm -hmm. So before the U.S. anesthesiologist APGAR presented her system of assessing newborn babies in 1953, there were no standardized way to tell if a baby's health was poor before that time. Other than probably just like looking at them and being like, "Uh, I think this baby looks unhealthy. Well, that was like the slap them, make them cry method. Hmm. All right. So what the APGAR test does is it's done by a doctor, the midwife, or a nurse. And you examine the baby and you look for breathing effort, heart rate, muscle tone, reflexes, and skin color. Hmm. So each category is scored one, zero, or two, depending on the observed condition of the baby. So the higher the score of the baby, the better the baby's doing. And if they're under a certain score, I think the score is like four or something like that, then they have to do like serious get on the baby, make sure they're breathing and all that. Interesting. So after the APGAR score came into use, researchers found that certain delivery methods and types of anesthesia were linked to struggling babies. Realizing the opportunities uh, her score gave to 
For statistical analysis, Apgar took a sabbatical to earn a master's in public health from John Hopkins, which we talked about. Mm -hmm. And she took a position at the March of Dimes Mother and Baby Foundation, where she educated people around the country about congenial birth defects. (laughs) And that's what I have on Virginia Apgar. That's nice. I was actually uh, like I knew Apgar from Apgar Test. And it was kind of funny. We're having a conversation because you're like, well, how do you know about that? Like, where'd you pick that up at? And I'm like, well, I don't know. And then it dawned on me. uh, One of the weird jobs that I have that have no relation to each other was I worked as a phlebotomist uh, first at a plasma donation center and then at a uh, at a hospital later on. And so when I would work in the mornings, anytime babies, you know, were born, they would do basically Apgar and then an extended version of different stuff with like blood testing, whatever. So obviously I like I was involved in that part of it. Uh, and then it just dawned on me like afterwards, like, Oh, you worked in the medical field. Duh. You're a smart one today. <laughs> I know. You know, that was an entire lifetime ago, completely different. Uh, yeah. But anyways, yeah, that is a, uh, that's really interesting. I, I am always amazed by anybody who can just go and like, oh, uh, and so this wasn't working. So then I got this degree and then, uh, so I, I, I needed more information. So then I got that degree. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. a difference between people who are what they call students for life, who just go to school and never get a job versus people who are creating and inventing and being innovative and continuing to get more education to help them along those lines and actually, you know, give back to society. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And I'm, yeah, I'm always impressed when people do that. Uh, so good. that's a good selection. So uh, I'm looking at this APGAR test. Uh-huh. And the first one, first one is breathing efforts. So mm-hmm. I would assume if the baby's not breathing, then that should be an issue, right? Right. That's one of those things that's probably a carryover from the non-standardized one where you just look and be like, well, you know, breathing is probably something that should be happening right now. Like, oh, the baby's blue. So what you said the score was like a zero, one, or two? So each section, so like breathing effort would get a zero, one, or two, heart rate, zero, one, or two, so et cetera. So zero is not breathing, one is... No heart rate, I would no assume. No heart rate? Oh, no okay. muscle tone, no reflex, no uh, bad skin color, which I assume would be like blue. Like jaundice, probably, actually. Or jaundice, too, yeah. So okay. yeah, I just thought that was interesting. Like yeah. heart rate, that one's kind of important if the mm-hmm. heartbeat's not heart, you know... They, uh, they actually add on to that now. They do like uh, hearing tests, eye tests, and then they do the blood. They do a quick thing where they dot the blood on uh, different parts of the paper that have a reaction that can show you immediately if you're at danger for certain things. Uh, and I believe one of them, don't quote me on this, but I feel like I remember one being a quick test for potential Down syndrome. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and then it would if it was positive, they would do further testing to confirm that, but... That would make uh, sense. I've, uh, like I said, this was a lifetime ago, but all right. So God, we're old. I know. What else do you have on Virginia uh, Apgar? That that's all I had. Uh, she didn't have too much information on the site that I was on. But. Okay, uh, th- that's awesome. I applaud your selection for Dash of Science. Uh, uh, hail to women in STEM. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for my first one. This is the one that you called me a cheater for. Oh, Uh, cheater. This is Anna Coleman Ladd. So she was an American sculptor from Massachusetts, uh, studied sculpting in Paris and Rome, and moved to Boston in 1905. She was a founding member of the Guild of Boston Artists and had lots of exhibits, uh, some of them which she did as a one-woman show, which was not common for women in the early 1900s. That's pretty Uh, cool. She wrote two books. Uh, What I found most interesting, though, and why I selected her for this, is that she used her talents to make prosthetics for soldiers who'd been injured in World War I. So, specifically, injuries to the face, which were disfiguring. That's awesome. Yeah, so she would basically, they would come in to the studio, and they would have a cast made of their face, uh, and their futures would be sculpted into clay or, uh, what's it called, plasticine. Uh, and then they would create a prosthetic piece from a very thin galvanized piece of copper, and they would paint it with hard enamel to resemble the the skin tone of the soldier. And she would use real hair for eyelashes and eyebrows and mustaches. Uh, and then they would attach them to the face with either strings or they would like use them with glasses if the patient had glasses and stuff like that. Uh, and like you can look her up and see a lot of the pictures of some of the soldiers that she's helped and 
I mean, you can tell that they're wearing a mask because we're talking early 1900s, but the difference between with the mask and without the mask is amazing. And I can really understand why like this would go a long ways to increase the confidence of some of these soldiers coming back and really help them out a lot. Yeah, soldiers need all the help they can get. Yep. She's actually, uh, she did a really interesting piece uh, of a person strewn over a, like a barbed wire fence as part of like the war memorial afterwards. Uh, I thought it was pretty interesting. But yeah, so she's just a, she not she's just a, but she is an artist or was an artist and a sculptor who used her arts to help out in, in medicine and, and stuff like that. And I just, I thought that was really interesting. That is very interesting. I will give you a pass on this one. All right. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, I did not do as in-depth research on, on her as you do on Apgar because I had several other people I just wanted to toss in there just in case. So uh, who do you have next? Okay, so I am doing Anne McLaren. She's a developmental biologist. She was born in 1927. She died in 2007. So we're going to start with her early life. Wait, she was born when? 1927. 1927. I thought you said 1907. I thought she no, was no, 100 no. years old. No, 1927 to okay. 2007. So McLaren was the daughter of a baron. Okay. And she was born in London. And lived there until the war. Uh, when the war happened, her family moved to their estate in North Wales. As a child, she appeared in the film Things to Come by H.G. Wells. That's cool. So she read zoology at Oxford and gained her M.A. She did research on the infestation of mites on drosophilia. Okay. She continued postgraduate studies at the University College of London in 1949. There she did research on rabbits and then on neurotropic marine viruses under Kingsley Sanders. She later observed, uh, obtained her PhD in 1952. Wow. Yes. Now, you might be asking, what is her contribution to science. I am. I'm asking that right now. I Carrie, thought... what is her contribution to science? I'm going to tell you. Okay. You have to be patient. I'm sorry. E easy. Easy. <laughs> All right. So she was an expert in embryonic development and the pioneer in in vitro fertilization research in the mid-1950s. Oh, wow. So McLaren and her colleagues successfully fertilized mouse embryos outside the womb and coaxed them to an early stage in embryonic development and then implanted those into surrogates. I didn't realize that technology and, and science was that old. Yeah, I know, right? 1950? That's crazy. Mm -hmm. So when the experiment was successful, McLaren sent a telegram to a friend who was away and said, four bottle babies born. <laughs> I like how they specify to a friend that was away. Like, she didn't send a telegram to the person standing next to her. Oh, that would make some <laughs> sense, right? The, the guy next to her already knew. I guess that makes sense, too. In 1982, she was appointed to the Warnock Committee and sought to establish guidelines for in vitro fertilization in humans. The year I was born. Oh, that's crazy. She dis, uh, was a smart thinker and a clear communicator with a passion for everything involved with getting from one generation to the next. That's pretty cool. I thought it was very cool. In vitro fertilization. In the 1950s. Of In the like, 1950s. I feel like it didn't really pick up popularity for quite a long time. Yeah, like I feel like that's a, uh, I don't know, if you were to ask me before hearing that, like when I thought that came about, I would have guessed early 90s. Me too, definitely. Like maybe the technology in the late 1980s, mm -hmm. like, but definitely not popular until like the mid 90s. That's crazy. Very crazy. Well, that, I think that is definitely a good selection. Uh, and has had a lot of benefit for families, like, all over, right? Right. Uh, it's it's become a pretty common thing for people to, who are having problems to go and have that done and have awesome families. Yeah, and now they're pushing that technology to be able to, you know, like, change genes and all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff. Yep. So, my next selection... Ooh, uh, ooh who is it? I'm probably you're probably gonna call me a cheater again. Can 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 you tell me who it is? I can. Are are you going to? I'm going to. Like, like now? Yes. Okay. All right. It is Judith Resnick. I don't know who that is. What? What? Should I? Yes. Oh no. We Maybe talked I about will. her two episodes ago. Judy Resnick. 
No, I don't. It's not pulling any memories. She was one of the mission specialists aboard the Challenger. Oh, okay. Now I sound yes. familiar. When I was reading about her uh, for that particular episode, I was just really, really impressed with her. And so I wanted to write her down and come back and talk about her again on, on this episode uh, celebrating women of science. So, uh, unfortunately, she's obviously she died on Challenger. Um, but I, I really just think she was truly amazing woman in STEM history. So, uh, before she worked, uh, as an astronaut for NASA, she worked at RCA as a design engineer in missile and radar projects. That's impressive. She won her graduate study program award. She performed circuit design for missile and surface radar division. She worked for NASA building custom integrated circuitry for phased array radars. That stuff seems all really varied. Yeah. It, I mean, it is, and for back then, like, the phased array radars were, were pretty interesting uh, and new at the time. She also developed electronics for NASA sounding rockets and telemetry systems. Uh, she qualified as a professional aircraft pilot while at the same time completing her Ph.D. She achieved near-perfect scores on her flying uh, exam, so she got two 100s and a 98. That's amazing. Uh, she also, I believe, she was the one that scored a perfect score on the SATs. Uh, she was a research fellow for biomedical engineering. So let's bring that back. She's doing all this work in electronics and circuitry, and then she's also doing biomedical engineering uh, at the Laboratory of Neurophysiology at the National Institute of Health. Yeah, that's really So impressive. researching physiology of the visual systems and uh, the biomedical engineering of optometry sweet uh we talked before we talked about how she placed at juilliard for piano but she decided not to go there so instead she went to carnegie that's hey, for you eric you said it right. carnegie uh, at age 17 one of the very few female students accepted at that school uh she got a bs in electrical engineering a phd in electrical engineering with honors uh, all of this before being selected as an astronaut for nasa what year was this again? Like, what year did this she... This would have been in the 70s and 80s. That's super impressive. Mm -hmm. So, true inspiration for all that she was able to achieve in an atmosphere that was much more openly restrictive towards women than today. I agree. That's quite quite a good skill. Mm -hmm. And remember, so varied. Yeah. And, I, like, I, I don't know if you remember when we were talking about reading it, we were just going through, she's like, a pilot and biomedical engineering and electrical engineering and... Just yada, like all these things that just aren't directly connected to each other. And like I was saying earlier with, uh, I think it was Apgar that we were talking about, like it, that always impresses me when anybody's able to do that. Go cross field. Yep. Uh, but we're going to take a quick break and then we will come back and talk about our next group of awesome women. <laughs> Hi, this is Two Girls on a Bench, the podcast. So we're two writers who tend to procrastinate just a bit. We like to snack. We like to talk. We don't have time to write, but we have time to do this podcast. We certainly do. Join us on the bench. Listen in. At number two, Girls on a Bench. All right, we're back. Uh, I hope you enjoyed those awesome podcast promos that I put in there after editing, so I don't know what it is, but I guarantee you they are awesome. <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, all right, well, uh, you're up. Who do you have next? Um, I know we were trying to do women in history, mm -hmm. um, but I actually found a woman I thought was pretty impressive who's making changes uh, to science now. Uh, and to be clear, there are a lot of them now, but this is just one that you found. No, this is one I found that I thought was really cool because it has to do with, like, rockets and NASA. Well, that you've got my vote already. All right. Her name is Tierra Gwyn Fletcher. She just got married, so if you look her up, half the time you get Fletcher, half the time you get Gwyn. Okay. Um, so let's start with her early life. Uh, Miss Fletcher was born in Atlanta, Georgia. Her interests and attraction to math and science began at the age of six and was cultivated by her parents. Her parents encouraged her to calculate things and measure things in her daily life. They did things like coupon clipping, totaling up grocery receipts, and learning how or learning about the applications of architecture. 
At 11 years old, Fletcher zeroed in on her interest in aerospace engineering while participating in the aerospace program put on by Lockheed Martin. Fletcher went on to study aerospace in college at MIT. That's cool. I'm always impressed with anybody who goes to MIT. So she is in her early 20s. She's either 21 or 22. I'm not sure which. But she graduated from MIT in 2017 um, and is one of the designers and structural analysts building the uh, space launch system for NASA. Yes, the SLS, Super Heavy Lift, Expendable Launch Vehicle. So Super Heavy Lift means it will lift uh, over 50 tons of payload into near-Earth orbit. So it's a pretty it's a pretty large, pretty big thing. Sounds pretty big. Yes. So the Space Launch System, or the SLS, as Chris put it, is an American space shuttle-derived super heavy lift expendable launch vehicle. It is part of NASA's deep space exploration plans, and they're including a crewed mission to Mars. Mm-hmm. It was very cool. Did you ever meet my friend Alex from my grad school program? I don't think I did. Uh, I actually wrote him a letter of recommendation. He ended up getting a job for a contractor working uh, on the RS-25 engines for the SLS. So, Oh, that's, that's impressive. Cool. Yes. So the SLS is going to be the fastest rocket ever created and the largest. Mm-hmm. The area that Fletcher is working on on this rocket is the exploratory upper stage of the spacecraft, which helps the craft complete its ascent phase. She is part of the engine selection task leading team responsible for all of this, and she is the youngest member on that committee. And how old is she now, did you say? I said she's either 21 or 22. I'm not sure so if she's had a birthday she, yet. She is at an age that for the longest time, and, and potentially even now, depending on where you're at, you can't rent a car. Right, or uh, stay in some hotels. Right, but she is is working on this project. That, that's insane. Yeah, this spacecraft is going to change the way we go to space. It is definitely a pretty cool thing, and I'm very excited uh, for it to be ready. So That's why I picked her, because she was so cool. Yeah, all right. well, good job. Well, thank you. <laughs> I actually have and, a quote here. Oh, go ahead. So this is a quote from Miss Fletcher. It says, you have to look forward to your dreams and you can't let anybody get in the way of it. No matter how tough it might be, no matter how many tears you may cry, you have to keep pushing. You have to understand that nothing comes easy. Keeping your eyes on the prize, you can succeed. That's an awesome quote. I thought so. I, I agree. <laughs> eyes on the prize, Chris. Eyes on the prize. No matter how many tears I shed. Yes, I. you're such a crier. I know. I'm crying right now. Oh, oh you're hurting Megan. You're oh. going to cry, and then I'm going to cry, and then we're all going <laughs> to cry. Uh, so that's awesome. That's, a, that's another good pick. Uh, for my next one, I actually have Edith Clark, which is somebody I hadn't heard of, and... Uh, so this, this woman was actually submitted by our friends over at Two Girls on a Bench, which is another great show from the Podfix Network. I did like that one. Yep. Uh, and she was the first female electrical engineer and the first female professor of electrical engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. Oh, that's impressive. Yes. What years are we looking at? So we're looking at uh, early 1900s and to 1920s time frame for when she got her degree and all that sort of stuff. She was born in like 1880, I think it was. That's amazing. Yeah. So uh, she specialized in electrical power system analysis, and she wrote a textbook called Circuit Analysis of AC Power Systems, which was pretty influential at the time. Uh, so what's interesting about her is she was orphaned at the age of 12 oh, uh, wow. and raised by her older sister and used her inheritance to study mathematics and astronomy graduating in i think it was 1908 yeah so and, and then she taught math and physics at a private school in san francisco before moving to study civil engineering which is a 180 from uh astronomy right oh yeah definitely <laughs> uh and then later she left to become a computer which if you're familiar with that term for anybody who's seen uh oh man I'm embarrassed that I can't remember the name of this movie it's the nasa movie about the women that helped during the apollo mission yeah, I don't know what it's called either. Yeah, it'll come to me about five minutes from now. But anyways, if if you watch that, you hear people called computers. It's literally people who are doing computations uh, at the time, right? So she was a computer for AT&T, uh, and then she computed for George Campbell doing math methods uh, for problems for long-distance electrical transmissions. And then she studied electrical engineering at Columbia University, which we've heard that school before with one of our other 
women we were talking about. We have. Yeah, so she went to night school and then later enrolled at MIT, becoming the first woman to earn a master's of science in electrical engineering from MIT. That's really impressive. Yes. Uh, so what's interesting is after she graduated, she actually had a really hard time getting a job as an engineer. So she just went back to like doing teaching and doing all these other things that are amazing work. And she actually invented what they call the Clark calculator, uh, which is a simplified power line equation. Uh, so like regarding electrical current, voltage and impedance and transmission lines. And so it was able to solve hyperbolic functions 10 times faster than any of the previous methods that were that were invented. That's amazing. Yeah. So uh, she had problems after that even. Uh, getting a job as an engineer through the early 20s. Uh, and yet she still gained like all these honors, like the first woman to present a paper at the American Institute of Electrical Engineers. And she, two, two of her papers won uh, awards from that same institute. Uh, and then she's the first woman to achieve professional standing at Tau Beta Pi, which is the oldest engineering honor society uh, in existence. Uh, she received the Soci the Society of Women Engineers Achievement Award, and then in 2015, uh, obviously after her death, she was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I actually have a quote for her. Oh, right on. She says, uh, uh, this is obviously directed at her time, but there is no demand for women engineers as such as there are for women doctors, but there's always a demand for anyone who can do a good piece of work. Nice. Yeah. So that is Edith Clark. Very good job. Who do you got? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm up. <laughs> um, the last woman I have, I didn't do much research on it because I forgot I was doing it mid what I was doing. <laughs> that doesn't sound like you at all. Yeah, right, because my memory is, you know, top notch. Anyway, her name is Jennifer Dodna. I'm not sure that's right. It's D-O-U-D-N-A, Dodna. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's one of the most culturally significant scientists studying today. She helped develop CRISPR, the genetic engineering method that could allow for designer babies, but also for the eradication or treatment of sickle cell anemia, cystic fibrosis, <laughs> Huntington's disease, and HIV. Yeah, that is really awesome. CRISPR has all sorts of applications and even most recently was in the news from the doctor in China who created the... Uh, I guess created is the wrong word, but used it to modify the genes of twins who are supposedly uh, immune to HIV. And there's also some stuff that came across from that too, that they might have a better uh, learning aptitude. Like I guess some of the genes that were edited, they found out actually have to do with like learning ability, if I remember correctly. We don't know if they will. It's just something that's connected to those genes. All of that highly ethical, uh, not highly ethical, all of that highly unethical He's in a lot of trouble. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons why we haven't done this yet. Uh, but anyways, it's just all sorts of numerous things. And there's actually a lot of non-traditional like gene editing things you can do with CRISPR too, which we did an, uh, an episode on called Gene Editing Doesn't Just Make Your Lettuce CRISPR. Uh, so guys should definitely go back and check that out. But anyways, uh, back to... We also did a Huntington's disease episode, yes, which did. is covered in this as well. Uh, with my favorite co-host, uh, Carrie. That was me. I was there. Yes. So you can check that one out as well. Uh, but yeah, so CRISPR is pretty awesome. Uh, is that what you had for her? Yeah. I, it says she's a professor at UC Berkeley. That is where I stopped. <laughs> well... Excellent. I guess you guys can all look up more on her on your own. That's your homework. <laughs> uh, I did have one more, and it was just kind of a quick one that's also a relatively recent one. She's still alive, but she's retired, so it counts. Uh, Colonel Eileen Collins. Uh, and in looking back, I noticed that one of yours and a lot of mine uh, focus around space and NASA. That wasn't intentional, but it absolutely shows my bias. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Mine was uh, innocent. Yes. Uh, so uh, Colonel Eileen Collins uh, graduated in 1979 from the Air Force undergraduate pilot training. She was a T-38 instructor pilot, which is a Northrop two-seat wind jet uh, supersonic jet trainer, the, fir oh. the world's first supersonic trainer and still in service today. Uh, she was also a C-141 commander, which was the Lockheed, uh, I think it's called Starlifter. It, basically, it was a, a military transport plane. 
and then she was an assistant professor of mathematics and a T-41 instructor, which is basically like a military version of one of the smaller Cessnas. That's cool. And then she was selected for the astronaut program while attending the Air Force Test Pilot School here at Edwards, which, like we keep saying, was like the path to become an astronaut, right? Yes, everyone uh, has come yes. through Edwards. So she graduated in 1990, and she was initially assigned to the Orbiter Engineering uh, Orbiter Engineering Support uh, group. So she worked all over in Mission Control, like as Capcom and other groups. But what I'm bringing her up today for is that she was the first woman NASA shuttle transport system pilot. The STS, the shuttle pilot, pilot, she's the first woman pilot for those. That's really cool. Yeah, so she served as a pilot on two missions and then as the commander of two more, uh, logging over 872 hours uh, of uh, in space and over 6,751 hours across 30 different types of aircraft. That is super impressive. Yeah, so she retired here in 2006. I just I thought that was pretty cool to mention. So that is pretty cool. I I had an idea over here. What's your idea? What if those babies that mm-hmm. got the genetic altering yes. become superheroes? They could be ultra learn. <sighs> no. <laughs> No, that is horrible nickname. All right. Oh no, that was awesome. All right, contest time. Uh, you guys should all tweet or write in email or on Facebook or whatever uh, a better superhero name for the twins than Ultra Learn. I believe that literally any of you can come up with this. Oh come on, that was amazing. <laughs> I refuse to believe that that is the best thing that we can come up with. <laughs> Uh, well, we're getting close to the end of the show, but before we leave, I wanted to do one more thing. Uh, we're talking about wonderful women in STEM, and I couldn't do this show without some of my wonderful friends and acquaintances in science that I have met uh, before the show, sometimes through the show, uh, and I just want to give a quick shout out to them. Uh, Dr. Anna Dornhouse, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology, who was gracious enough to come and talk to us about bees, aliens, and the evolution of intelligence. That was a great episode. I love doing that one. Uh, and then my personal friend for over 10 years, who's going to get mad at me because I am going to murder her last name. Uh, <laughs> she got married, and it's a German and then Mexican hyphenated name, and it's um, Mikelki uh, Solis, <laughs> Cassandra Mikelki Solis. Uh, I am sorry if I got that wrong. I have been trying so hard. <laughs> but she is a she is a clinical cytogeneticist who joined us uh, as we talked about genes and gene therapy mutations, cancer research. Uh, That was a great episode. Definitely check that out. We also have Dr. Kat Day, who is a chemist and professor uh, and admin of the Chronicle Flask, who helped us chat about communicating science on social media. We've got Dr. Carol Korsher, the reproductive biologist who chatted with us about CRISPR and biological energy. Uh, We have Karen Ernst, the director of Voices for Vaccines, who brought us firsthand information about the fight against anti-vax movement and the issues with supports for families of children with autism and how it makes them really easy targets for charismatic and supportive anti-vax groups because we're not giving them the support they need from uh, legitimate, you know, science-believing organizations. Uh, My good friend, uh, Rose W., the certified peer support specialist who just got accepted into graduate school in psychology. So congrats, Rose. Congrats, Uh, Rose. We're proud of you. Uh, She was wonderful enough to have a discussion with us about cognitive bias and the power of storytelling. And, of course, our very own wonderful and amazing Carrie Dykes. Oh, I get a call out? (laughs) You do get a call out. You've been on more shows than any other co-host. partially because I have selected you as our permanent co-host. So thank you for that. Background in school counseling, but really your specialty is putting up with my crap on the show and keeping me down to earth and the show light and fun. So thank you. Uh, You're welcome. I'm blushing, not going to (laughs) lie. Blushing doesn't show up on radio, so blush louder. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll blush harder. (laughs) But uh, that's it for this week's show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, We had a lot of fun looking up some of these really amazing women, and there's so many options out there. There are. So many. Uh, And I had originally intended on doing just a little quick shout out on our social media pages each day. And I am already six days behind because that's my life. I'm just busy. But I'm going to put up some 
backdated ones and then uh, I'll try to continue forward because I mean even 30 days isn't enough to just truly talk about all of the great women not only in the history of STEM and other fields but just that are actively doing amazing things today you know women are people and as people they are awesome capable of doing all sorts of amazing stuff and I just I hope that we can appreciate them on more than just this one month a year. I agree. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. uh, And we will catch you next week for our next episode. And yeah, so thank you. Thank you. Guys, have a great night. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. I hope you learned a lot of awesome information about a small fraction of some amazing women throughout history. If you have a favorite woman in STEM, past or present, let us know. You can talk about it on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash dash of science or the group which is linked from the page. You can email me at chris at dash of Catch me on Twitter at physicistchris or on Twitch at the same username and see some of our live shows. As always, you can support us by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash dash of science and get some sweet prizes. Just got a whole new collection of science stickers in for the Science Pack Award. Also, don't forget to check out all the other amazing content celebrating women. Even Google is running a Women Behind the Apps celebration, which shows women who advance gender equality in the games industry, apps that empower women, and movies and books that feature inspiring women. That's all for this week, citizen scientists. Remember, live, learn, build. A Dash of Science was written and produced by 5 Hertz Labs. Music written by Ghost Tube Productions. A Dash of Science is a proud member of the Podfix Network. This was a podcast from the Podfix Network. You can check out more shows like it at podfixnetwork.com.